the uh, people who are going to be writing these, uh, they're not going to come up with something that is designed to break the web. Except that store. You're, you're First gonna, of all, you're gonna, you're gonna say, "Oh no, I've got a boogeyman in the closet. It's Bill Barr." But really, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for him to do something that uh, uh, breaks the internet. Uh, uh, but he's been breaking the Justice Department. Why not go one step further? Yeah, well, that's a lefty talking pot. Uh, uh, but. Welcome to episode 298 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers, uh, most of us, uh, talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and the views expressed here do not ex- reflect those of our institutions, our firms, our clients, our families, our pets, uh, certainly not our children. Uh, joining me today, Gus Hurwitz, back after a while. Uh, uh, he's an associate professor of law and co-director of Space, Cyber, and Telecom uh, at uh, the University of Nebraska. Gus, good to have you back. It's always great to be here, and it's been too long. That's right. Uh, and Klon Kitchen, who also is uh, only here on occasion, uh, Senior Research Fellow for Science, Technology, and National Security at the Heritage Foundation. Klon, good to have you. Hey, great to be here. And uh, uh, a crowd favorite, Nick Weaver, a senior researcher and not a lawyer, a lecturer uh, in computer science at UC Berkeley. Nick, Nick, good to have you. Good to have you. And I do speak for one of my cats. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Only only because the cat can't speak for herself. Uh, all right. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program, which I uh, want to announce at the top of the program just was named one of the 64 best channel podcasts of 2019 by Forrester Research. Uh, by channel, I think they mean like business. Uh, it, uh, but uh, sort of nice to uh, uh, to make uh, Forrester's uh, chart. I think this means we're in the upper right-hand corner of their famous uh, four-part chart. Uh, let's get started with the news. Uh, the um, Illinois Biometric uh, Privacy Act, BIPA, uh, uh, has claimed a real victim, uh, or at least a, a, a lot of scalps. Uh, uh, Gus, uh, what happened? So this uh, case, it dates back to, I think, 2015. It deals with um, Facebook's um, uh, facial recognition system that lets you, that will uh, recommend automatic tagging of friends' faces in photos. Um, And that's facial recognition that is a a biometric uh, identifier under BIPA. Um, And BIPA is kind of the uh, TCPA of uh, biometrics. Uh, It has statutory damages of um, $1,000 to $5,000 per person. So uh, since 2015, uh, there's been this litigation. um, And uh, in 2019, uh, the Ninth Circuit uh, said, yeah, we're going to let this go through. Um, There was a standing challenge, thanks Spokio, whether or not um, uh, uh, these were uh, tangible enough damages concrete enough damages to be recognized for Article Three standing purposes. Uh, and the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago said, uh, no, we're going, we're, well, the Supreme Court denied cert a couple of weeks ago. Um, so Facebook was facing uh, literally billions of dollars of potential statutory damages, uh, 7 million Illinois users protected by BIPA, um, and uh, multiply that out, $7 billion to $35 billion worth of damages. Uh, so Facebook settled. Um, is the bottom line here, a $550 uh, million settlement, um, which uh, 
even after you do the let's subtract out lawyers fees could actually be uh, tens of dollars for every effective user, which in uh, this area is actual money. Yeah, I, I, a couple of things. First, uh, uh, this is um, uh, this law, as you say, it's the TCPA in the sense that uh, everybody brings these lawsuits and it's hard to beat them because once you say we don't care what your damages are, and of course the, there's almost never any real damages from being identified biometrically, especially by your face, you just say – you did it. You didn't get my consent and consequently you owe me $5,000 and you owe everybody else in the class the same exact amount and there's no way to break up the class by saying, well, some of these people uh, really felt bad about being identified and others didn't because nobody cares that you just get the statutory damages. And that means that there are no really good class action defenses uh, 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 to these cases. It's just a matter of counting and multiplying by 5,000 to, to get the max damages. Yeah, the, the real puzzle for me um, in this case isn't the settlement. It's completely unsurprising given the potential exposure here. Uh, the real puzzle to me is that the Supreme Court uh, denied cert. Obviously, the Supreme Court uh, usually does that, but this is a case that a lot of folks thought might have some legs. Um, and I wonder whether or not there is another uh, case working its way up um, that might uh, get these issues. And it's really uh, post-Spokio. Uh, clarification sort of issues to the court. I don't know. You know, you're not likely to get a circuit conflict over litigation in Illinois. It's going to go to the Seventh Circuit. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think the, the – I've never been very interested in the Spokio issue because you can sue in, in state court uh, for this. If you get thrown out of federal court, you're just going to end up in state court. Things will be worse for the defendant there. Uh, and um, uh, this – Doctrine of, of standing is just a federal doctrine. It's not. A, it's not a constitutional principle. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I, 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 we, we do a lot of, of litigation in this area. I've heard have heard people grumble that um, the Facebook settlement really changes the curve for other defendants because uh, uh, you know nothing you offer the plaintiffs' lawyers will look particularly impressive after they've taken home. Uh, you know, a third of $550 million or something close to it. Well, I have to point out um, the the biggest regulatory effect on Facebook that we've seen so far, 6% decline in its stock price, $50 billion loss in market value um, last week, $50 billion massively dwarfs uh, any fines that any regulators have imposed upon the company. So I, I still um, put it, placing my bets on the market as the best regulator. That could be, uh, uh, but boy, this is this is just like the dumbest possible uh, privacy violation. That uh, nobody nobody really cares that they've been tagged in most photos, uh, and uh, if you've got a complaint about being tagged in a few, you know, you probably have a complaint about your friends, not uh, not necessarily Facebook. I am just astonished at this next story. Uh, we've gotten used to these suggestions of uh, Chinese espionage aimed at academics and uh, usually ethnic Chinese researchers. Uh, uh, but uh, the chairman of the Harvard Chemistry Department just got arrested for just an egregious uh, a violation of uh, uh, his obligations to the United States government. It's like uh, uh, the U.S. government was paying him to do the research and the Chinese government was saying, oh, all right, well, we'll pay you 10 percent more if you just give us everything you find. Uh, um, that's more or less how I read it. Uh, Not quite. So it's a little bit more complicated. 
So to begin with, when you fill out federal grant applications, you're supposed to tell what other grants you currently have, um, current and pending. And this is to reduce conflict of interest. And there's also conflict of interest regulations, institutional regulations. And what this guy did was he uh, basically got recruited by the Chinese Thousand Talents Program, paid, uh, what was it, $25,000 a month when he was in Wuhan, plus $150,000 living expenses, plus a multi-million dollar research grant to set up a joint laboratory that was advertised as the Wuhan-Harvard joint laboratory, blah, blah, blah. He did not even get permission from Harvard to set up the lab, let alone use Harvard's name. Well, he knew he knew and, what he was doing was not right. He, he knew he was trying to slide under the radar, didn't he? Yeah. And the charges themselves are lying to federal investigators that when the grant agencies finally got wind of this, they uh, investigated. He lied to them. They got his emails disclosing basically how he lied and tried to clean up afterwards. And the real thing is, is this is a case where the details matter. So when the news of the arrest first broke, there was pretty much a mild panic in my department of, is this some part of some larger crackdown, et cetera. But when you actually read the criminal complaint, you go, dude, there's a good reason why Harvard has basically cut this guy loose and is not doing anything institutional to defend him. Yeah, this is not just the crime. This is the cover-up for sure, right? Uh, well, the cover-up is the crime. Yeah. I So uh, this is not just, from, from the U.S. point of view, a matter of academic conflict of interest rules or disclosure rules. Uh, um, this is th – there's a national security element to this uh, that's pretty troubling, isn't it, Con? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So over the last several years – U.S. officials have been describing a shift in, in the way that the Chinese are pursuing some of their espionage activities, where they're moving away from what used to be affectionately called their thousand grains of strand, uh, sand strategy, where you just you know gather broad swaths of expertise and, and, and data, to where they're now targeting um, academic institutions and other technical experts on very uh, narrow and precise technical priorities. And so it was actually in May of last year when FBI Director Ray was giving a speech and he said this. He said, quote, China has pioneered a societal approach to stealing innovation in any way it can from a wide array of businesses, universities and organizations. They're doing it through Chinese intel services, through state owned enterprises, through ostensibly private companies, through graduate students and researchers, through a variety of actors all working on behalf of China. And so this is something, you know, in quote, this is something that um, China watchers and the federal government have been watching happen quite a bit. That's why there's a great deal of concern about some of the Confucius centers on these universities. And this is about more than, um, than you know, as we were talking about, you know, kind of failing to disclose. I mean, so Lieber, the, the chairman of, of Harvard's chemistry, he's a pioneer in nanotechnology. And, um, you know, had filed a couple of patents for technologies and, and other things. And so it wasn't just, you know, hey, you're not dealing with the Department of Defense and, and the National Institute of Health the way we expect you to. But specifically his expertise that was increasingly being made available to the Chinese. 
So I, I, I'm guessing this what ha- has happened here is that the Chinese have gone from needing pretty much every technology that could be stolen to having implemented a lot of these technologies and now the only um, the thefts of IP that do them good are pretty sophisticated and have to be pretty targeted and that might explain why they went after uh, Lieber. Uh, but I, I, my guess is that the FBI found him um, as part of their effort to figure out where the Chinese are getting IP uh, in a clandestine fashion and uh, uh, he just popped up on their, uh, their radar. I'd say that it might very well be broader than that. Um, I know several universities are doing audits or conducting uh, uh, soft audits, let's call them, to try and understand the scope of Chinese involvement in talent development on their campuses. And uh, many are finding uh, tens or even hundreds of points of contact. So I think it is a pretty broad effort to develop these university um, uh, connections. If I can just add to that real quick, I, I almost guarantee that the number of unreported connections are going to be skyrocketing as people uh, become aware of this. I think there's been a lot of under-the-radar activity going on, and the, uh, the light's being shown on that now. And they're going to start. They're going to start presumably reporting it because they don't want to be tagged for having to fa- having failed to do so, right? Yep. Yeah. Especially because cases like this affect your grades. And we don't want a Stanford yacht scenario again. I take it that was when Stanford bought a yacht uh, with grant money? Uh, Stanford charged mistakenly $1.2 million of uh, maintenance on their yacht onto their federal grant overhead. And since then, we've had to deal with the fallouts and paperwork. But which of us have not used the wrong credit card at one time or another? I mean, yeah, of course, <laughs> that's right. I, I, you know, uh, uh, next time they'll charge the Chinese for that. Uh, I'm just saying, we landlocked states don't have university yachts. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Okay, so there's been lots and lots of uh, attention given to a bill that hasn't even been introduced and a uh, meeting, the uh, workshop scheduled by the attorney general that hasn't gotten agenda yet. Uh, uh, but the uh, the speculation in tech circles is that the earn it bill, um, a, a Lindsey Graham uh, and uh, Senator Blumenthal uh, uh, joint effort, uh, uh, which uh, says that it is about when Section 230 immunity can be uh, uh, claimed in the context of child exploitation and child trafficking uh, uh, materials um, and per- the, the, the notion being that uh, um, there should be less immunity in those cases and, and we've already seen with SESTA-FOSTA that that's a, a, an argument that carries a lot of weight. Um, And uh, uh, the Graham-Blumenthal bill um, essentially says if you want to keep your immunity in the context of uh, child sex crimes, you're going to have to do more than uh, um, uh, just uh, uh, claim it. You're going to have to earn it. Uh, uh, Nick, you, you hated this idea, if I remember right. Yes. And the reason why is because it's a blatant attempt to disrupt security, and it wouldn't actually work. So here's the status quo. The status quo is companies have an obligation to report any child exploitation material they find. 
but they do not have an obligation to search for it. And this is actually very important because if they, if they had an obligation to search for it, then you could credibly argue that these are government searches and it would disrupt all our prosecution of the actual traders of material. Right, because right now people what? go, uh, the, the companies go looking for it. They don't have uh, probable cause. They just go looking. If they find it, they turn it over to the government. The government says, oh, look what we found and prosecutes. Whereas if they were charged with uh, uh, the search and responsibility for the search, there'd be a Fourth Amendment inquiry and they probably wouldn't survive. Right. And I think you could actually make a good case that there should be an obligation to search and that it would be reasonable under the Fourth Amendment using analogy to those uh, laws that affect DUI checkpoints, which are legal, Mm -hmm. Um, or interior border patrol checkpoints like the one on I-5 between um, San Diego and L.A. So you could make a strong case that you could do a mandate to search. But if you want to do that, you have to go out and start with let's make a mandate to search. Let me let me stop you there, because I think they do do that, but they do it a little more cleverly than you're giving them credit for, because what they've essentially said is that uh, there is liability for recklessly. Uh, endangering children, uh, uh, allowing the distribution of uh, uh, child pornography. They don't say that you have to search for it, but you, if you are, you know, kind of willfully ignorant, or you've been warned uh, uh, that this kind of thing is happening, and you refuse to look for it, you're running the risk of of reckless uh, uh, liability. Uh, that that has not been the case. It's all been uh, uh, all liability has been based uh, uh, in the criminal statute on willfulness. Now, the, the what they're proposing is if you don't uh, shape up and follow best practices, uh, we're going to expose you to uh, reckless liability to civil plaintiffs like kids who've been harmed. Uh, and, and that is going to create pressure to search, but it isn't a search mandate. It is effectively a search mandate when you have the best practices as defined by the attorney general. Congress is, uh, for all those who hate the regulatory state, this is a pay into the regulatory state of Congress. We don't know actually what to suggest and we're afraid to suggest. So uh, attorney general, do what you will. Yeah, formally what they do is they set up a commission. They, they lots of people get to name lots of commissioners from various interest groups. Uh, uh, they're supposed to recommend stuff, uh, a set of guidelines of best practices for trying to prevent uh, uh, child endangerment on uh, uh, social media. But a, at the end of the day, if the attorney general wants to tweak those, uh, he can tweak them. Uh, he just has to offer reasons. And then those are the best practices that go into effect. Correct. And the problem is, is the liability is so large that uh, if the best practices basically say you have to search, you have to search because there are already $100 million plus standing judgments out there brought by victims against those who trade the material on a joint and severable liability basis. And so if the tech companies were added into that, you would be talking billions and billions of dollars of liability within a nanosecond. 
which makes the best practices effectively mandatory. And it, it, I, I agree that there, it, it, it's an enormous incentive to do this. And, and my response to your uh, invoking the billions of liability is to say, cry me a river. These are guys who are making billions of dollars providing social media. And if they are willing to take the risk that they have recklessly allowed kids to be exploited uh, groomed, uh, exposed to, or uh, 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 starred in. Uh, uh, uh. Congratulations. You've just banned every video game that's multiplayer. Because right now, the video games that are multiplayer have a big problem with this, and they're trying very hard. But if what they try does not meet some mythical best practices, they're out of business. If this goes through, you would basically see Fortnite and a whole bunch of others in this multi-billion dollar industry just go away. Minecraft would cease to exist. Look, I, that's the reason they're talking about best practices as a safe harbor instead of just saying you can be liable for recklessness. Uh, what, what we're really hearing from the uh, techno-libertarian left is, oh – People will not start will not provide end-to-end -end encryption because they're afraid that they will turn out to have recklessly enabled a lot of child grooming and a lot of child attacks uh, because they can't find it anymore, which is exactly so. But I'm not sure I feel bad about it. That is a social cost of end-to-end -end encryption. And who should bear the social cost of end-to-end -end encryption? How about the people who are profiting from it? Okay, congratulations, Stuart. You have just broken the web because now I am going to go after my ISPs for recklessly allowing Tor to work at all or HTTPS to work at all. That's the problem is we don't even know because best practices isn't even defined in the bill. That's why this is so dangerous is that it doesn't even define does best practices mean known images known images with permutations, unknown images. If it's unknown images, you're talking having to build AI-powered uh, image search in all applications that transmit an image. So the uh, people who are going to be writing these best practices include a large number of techies and uh, child endangerment experts and a whole bunch of tech lobbyists, uh, uh, they're not going to come up with something that is designed to break the web. Except that store. You're, you're going to you're going to you're going to say, oh, no, I've got a boogeyman in the closet. It's Bill Barr. But really, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for him to do something that uh, uh, breaks the Internet. Uh, uh, but he's been breaking the Justice Department. Why not go one step further? Yeah, well, that's a lefty talking point. Uh, I, uh, but uh, no, I, I, I think the idea that there should be responsibility for the worst consequences of your service from which uh, they're making billions of dollars is not at all unreasonable. And uh, the idea that, yes, of in course, we should case, be realistic. draft it better. So draft it in such a way that it's a clear mandate for search of known content, whether or not the messages are encrypted. If you do that, then you make it clear a, what are the requirements? B, you eliminate the probability of something going bad. 
and see, you can actually just be blatant and say, yes, this is mandating a bulk surveillance for criminal activity, but blah, 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 and actually have a hope perhaps of getting it through the Supreme Court. While with this, we'd be looking at a decision probably that would basically make it impossible to prosecute these guys going forward. Okay, so I, uh, I, I'm going to stop there because th- th- this is fun, but uh, we probably should cover the rest of the, uh, the news. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, this is a more plausible bill than you do, uh, and I'm not sure there's a First Amendment problem, especially because this isn't just about content. Uh, this is about being told if you're uh, WhatsApp, there's a WhatsApp group that is devoted to grooming children and to passing them around uh, and uh, being told, yeah, sorry, we can't do anything about that. We're just going to let them let them keep talking. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's not responsible. Um, Klan, uh, uh, there, there are some Iranian app providers who found clever ways around uh, the bars on uh, um, exporting services to Iran. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether it tells us much about the future, but it is kind of clever. Yeah. So there's a Iranian app called Snap or Radic Radio. And if you uh, were an Iranian and you were using a VPN and you could spoof your IP address, then you could go on to um, Apple's uh, app store and download this application. And if you were accessing this application from outside of Iran, if your IP address was outside of Iran, it looked like a digital radio app. But if you were inside Iran, it was a ride hailing app like Uber or Lyft or something similar. And the whole idea was that this was a, an attempt to get around um, some of uh, Apple's response to the sanctions against Iran, because back in 2018, uh, Apple started enforcing sanctions by blocking the entire country from accessing its app store and banning all Iranian developers you know, the year before. And so, yeah, what we what we saw was a, a group of uh, investors and a group of app developers trying to circumvent those sanctions and, and Apple specifically uh, implementation of those sanctions by building this kind of two faced application that if you could get it onto your phone, you could use it. Because one of the interesting things about the way Apple enforces these is that it can prevent apps from being installed or updated, but it doesn't currently delete already downloaded apps. So if you were able to get it on your phone, then you're able to use it inside of Iran. So that raises a question. Do you think they have an obligation to do that? I would have thought under export controls, uh, you know, uh, export control law says you cannot knowingly support something that was exported in violation of U.S. law. Uh, if there was a, a export control violation at the beginning of this, they may have a legal obligation to cut off service. Well, I think some of the actions that they've taken subsequently, I think at least Apple would say, look, as we've become aware of this, you know, we've we've taken this action. And, and in this case, they've just completely removed it from the store at all. So now it, it's not even present and cannot be downloaded going forward. Yeah. So if, if you were lucky enough to download it already, you might be able to still use it, but otherwise not. Uh, this creates an incentive to turn the, the thing into uh, 600 kinds of apps, right? It should be a payment app and a, uh, uh, a house finding app, a, a uh, uh, Airbnb app, uh, because it's the only app you can use inside of uh, Iran, at least for now. 
here's a story that I um I I have rarely followed robocalling sto- uh, stories because they're promises that something is going to be done uh, and nothing effective is going is is actually done and I keep getting the robocalls uh, at home at night uh, to the point where I just don't answer the, uh, the my landline. Um, in fact, you kind of wonder whether you have why you have one. The FCC is doing more. I don't know uh, uh, whether. Uh, uh, Gus, you think that what they're doing is going to be actually effective or not? Uh, so lots of stuff is going on. We have in the last uh, week or so uh, activity from DOJ, FTC and FCC um, against uh, uh, intermediaries who have been uh, facilitating placing of robocalls. To the broader point, I think uh, winter is coming. I guess that's no longer a, a timely reference, um, but um, win- winter is coming for the robocall industry. Uh, the Stir Shaken framework, this is a cryptographically signed public key infrastructure um, for call authentication. Um, it's been many years in the making, but it's actually happening. Um, uh, the implementation, it's now been mandated by Congress. The FCC is working on the implementing rules. Uh, it's going to make it a lot harder to make uh, phone calls that can't be traced back to their source, um, which is going to make it a lot easier for carriers to block those calls and uh, therefore either for uh Uh, Congress and the FCC to mandate blocking of those calls or liability to be imposed upon the companies that are making them or facilitating them, which is a a long-winded wind-up to uh, the DOJ just getting a uh, restraining order against a couple of these companies, the FTC putting several companies on notice about um, their uh, uh, telephone marketing rule restrictions. Um, This is all, I think, the all-hands-on-deck approach from the federal government, every agency saying, we're coming down on you. And as the stir shaken framework gets implemented, and we've got greater ability to actually identify who these callers are, um, we're going to do everything we can to shut them down. Even before stir shaken is mandatory, I'm starting to see notes uh, on my uh, phone uh, when I get calls that say spam question mark, uh, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, which I take it is probably this is this is a call that uh, uh, is not authenticated. Uh, uh, and of course, nobody answers a call that has spam question mark uh, as its uh, a, a caller. Um, so people are going to start demanding if they want to actually make phone calls, uh, they're going to start demanding uh, that their provider use the stir shaken uh, protocol and authenticate their calls as actually coming from the number that they've given, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, a couple uh, carriers, AT&T and T-Mobile, for instance, are already uh, implementing uh, Star Shaken. Carriers have been able to uh, use telephone number databases um, for the last year or so to uh, indicate whether a call is a potential spam or if it's from a known non-phone number uh, to block the call. For a long time, this is an area that's just fascinating to uh, focus on. Um, For a long time, carriers were reluctant to or thought that it might run afoul of common carrier regulations to block calls that they knew to be fraudulent because as common carriers, they were required under law to take all calls. So it's been a long process uh, for them to get clear legal authority to block calls that they know 
are uh, fraudulent or spam, let alone uh, to uh, indicate or block ones that only may be. Um, so it, it's been a long process, but I do think that uh, uh, spring is coming in uh, the robocall area. So let me ask you, is is, is winter coming for the ring doorbell? Uh, there's a New Hampshire case that raises what I think is a very good question, which is uh, uh, the, the doorbell just sits there and records stuff uh, uh, that you say to the doorbell or on the doorstep. Uh, some guy, you know, shot his brother-in-law uh, naturally on the doorstep uh, uh, and is arguing that uh, everything he said has to be suppressed because New Hampshire is a two-party state. Uh, he didn't consent to be uh, to have his uh, statements recorded and consequently uh, um, the evidence can't be introduced and maybe uh, uh, more troubling uh, uh, ring and uh, everybody who has installed it in New Hampshire and Maryland and uh, a host of other two-party consent states could be liable for having set up their uh, their doorbell to record people. Uh, that's that's the, the, the uh, disaster scenario. How plausible is it? So the uh... – the thing that wiretap laws protect isn't video recording, it's audio recording. So if you have your ring set up or you have a security camera set up to record audio outside of your house in a two-party or all-party consent state, this is a, a very potential concern. It's a very real concern. Um, and I think uh, as a, a matter of wiretap law, it's pretty black and white, straightforward. Um, but I don't think that the right focus here is on wiretap law and should we update the wiretap laws to uh, allow this sort of recording or do we need to? Really, this is a privacy issue. Is your front porch or is stuff that you can hear from your front porch inside or outside of your home? Is it occurring in a public space or a, a private space? One of the things that over the last 10, 30 years has been happening with the changing technology, uh, technological world that we live in is the divide between the classic public space, private space um, delineation. It, it's been eroding. And our privacy laws, our privacy theory, we don't have a contemporary way to understand this divide or even what it means. Um, so I, I think we should discuss this question and what the meaning of wiretap laws are and what they're supposed to protect in the modern setting. And the question and discussion should be, how do we update these outdated laws to the new technological era? Yeah, well, because privacy law is always out of date. It's out, out of date from the day it is enacted. Uh, uh, and we're constantly discovering new unintended consequences. This this is from the 60s. Uh, uh, but no one thought when you, when you walk up to somebody's house and pushed the buzzer and they said, who is it, uh, that you had been wiretapped, uh, uh, even though you uh, hadn't given a formal consent to uh, uh, to have your uh, uh, words picked up electronically and conveyed. Uh, now, because it's more common, uh, uh, we're discovering that this Kind of applies on your front step as well, uh, uh, and uh, and because everybody's mad at Ring, they're they're arguing that this is a violation of the law. I I thought the better argument came from some of the uh, um, uh, other states that are relying on this as evidence, saying, "Oh, it has to be a willful uh, uh, wiretap or capture of the communication." And when you set up the doorbell, you don't actually willfully cut. Uh, uh, 
collect anybody's uh, uh, statements. And so there was no willful uh, intercept of any particular communication. Uh, that may be the key for having um, uh, the courts decide that the privacy laws don't apply here. This is, you know, the the Brits uh, uh, on top of Brexit uh, uh, are now proposing a, a surprisingly intelligent uh, set of rules for IoT security. Uh, uh, Nick, what are they? Uh, what are they saying? Uh, IoT devices have to do in order to meet basic standards. Number one, every device must have a unique password, not a common to all instances factory password. That's huge. There must be a point of contact where you can say, hey, you have a problem. That's huge. And you actually have to say how long it's going to be supported for, which is finally huge. So these are very much basic bread and butter best practices that actually enshrining them into law would be a really good thing for consumers and frankly for reputable IoT manufacturers because one of the problems that you have as a manufacturer is doing the right thing like oh unique passwords having a point of contact actually saying how long you'll support things for is currently not rewarded in the marketplace so there's no incentive to actually do things right. So a legal mandate like this really reduces the externalities. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably good for consumers. I mean, Sonos, which will sell you hundreds of dollars worth of audio equipment, uh, just announced that, oh, by the way, we're bricking a lot of it uh, uh, because we don't intend to uh, uh, provide security updates or any updates. And uh, oh, we just want you to throw it away uh, it, it, and we'll give you a coupon for, for new stuff, uh, which is a kind of remarkable uh, uh, as an abuse of consumers, um, but uh, would have required a, a statement to that effect at the time they marketed it to people, which certainly would have been clarifying for all of us. Yep. You know, credit to the UK government. Um, uh, two quick uh, uh, things. Maryland wants to criminalize ransomware. Con, uh, uh, any uh, you know, that strikes me as kind of dumb. It's like criminalizing the rain uh, uh, in you know Washington State. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the attention I've seen is to the unintended consequences of this, which are significant. Yeah, that's right. So obviously the main context for this bill is uh, last year's uh, ransomware attack, the Robin Hood ransom attack against the city of Baltimore. And um, what we've got now is we've got the, the Maryland legislature with a, with a draft bill out there. And, uh, you know, one of the unintended consequences, I'd like to think it was unintended, is that it criminalizes much of the work that cybersecurity researchers are going to do. So, uh, you know, any type of unauthorized intentional access or attempts to access will be made illegal. Any copying or attempting to copy or possess or attempt to possess the contents of, of a computer database that's been accessed and, and a whole host of other very routine uh, cybersecurity research activities. Uh, currently, there's no kind of exclusion or provision in the bill that would that would exclude cybersecurity researchers from these penalties. Uh, and so it's one of these things where, uh, you know, the, the intent uh, of trying to minimize the risk of ransomware, I think everybody can get behind. Uh, like you say, it's a little bit like, you know, making rain illegal. It's just one of these these things that exists. And particularly in the cybersecurity research realm, uh, it's a necessary re or necessary reality. And so they've got time to rework this language and to make it better. They certainly have to because 
uh, as currently drafted, it's just not going to work. Yeah, they'd be better off buying Baltimore an umbrella. Um, all right, uh, the UN. Uh, uh, this is man uh, or dog bites man. The, the UN has <sighs> suffered a breach that is attributed possibly to a, a semi competent uh, nation state, uh, which of course the UN described as uh, sophisticated. Uh, uh, is is there anything we can learn from this, Nick? Dude, who doesn't spy on the UN, apart from the Germans, because they're too damn polite about it? It's just kind of really is a dog bites man. The interesting thing is that they tried to cover it up, and there seems to be a lot of people shocked at the idea that the UN would be spied on. It's like being shocked that it rains in Seattle. (laughs) So let's do uh, a bunch of... Uh, bring uh, stories to bring our audience up to date on stories we've covered before. Uh, the guy who was in Israel, uh, uh, the ha- the Russian hacker who was in Israel that the Russians pulled out all the stops to uh, uh, keep from being extradited to the United States was extradited to the United States and almost immediately pleaded guilty. Uh, uh, I'm guessing he gets uh, he gets sent to a place where he won't be shanked by some Russian organized crime guy. Uh, uh, is that the deal? Uh, I suspect it's also he is singing like a little bird and the uh, DOJ is taking lovely notes of his lovely song. All right. And and uh, uh, Nick, you suggested that we uh, uh, have sponsors on the show uh, uh, who didn't want to be talked about. And Avast was the uh, uh, the poster child for that. Uh, Avast has killed the, um, the jump shot subsidiary that brought them so much bad publicity because it was collecting people's uh, uh, very detailed uh, uh, website uh, habits and hundreds of people out of work. Uh, uh, kind of fast, uh, uh, fast action. Uh, in part because you know they didn't invest in uh, our new uh, um, pay us to shut up uh, 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 sponsorship program. Yep, the Michael Avenatti Memorial Podcast sponsorship strategy does seem to work. <laughs> Okay, the Bezos phone. Uh, uh, Senator Murphy, Chris Murphy, uh, has asked uh, the intelligence community to find out whether uh, Bezos's phone was hacked by uh, uh, the uh, Saudis. Uh, I, I'm guessing that's not something that Jeff Bezos is all, all that thrilled to hear about. Uh, uh, having his stuff handed over to people who can really do a deep forensic dive on what happened to his phone is potentially pretty awkward for him. Uh, and meanwhile, he's been sued by the brother of his new girlfriend uh, saying, you've been quietly saying it was me who did this, not the Saudis. Uh, so it's it, this has gotten messier and messier as as things do when you've got you know tens of billions of dollars floating around the Iowa courthouse pen testers who went to jail uh, despite having a letter from the uh, courthouse uh, uh, they were uh, pen testing. Uh, their tra- charges have finally been dropped. Uh, that's good news. Uh, uh, Lab MD um, uh, has finally jumped the shark. Uh, their effort to hold a bunch of uh, uh, um, lawyers and uh, their uh, corporate uh, opponent, Tversa, liable for racketeering has been thrown out as time part. I think maybe that's the last of the litigation. It really ought to be. Mike Dart, he should go find a new career. Uh, he's done a great job of reforming the FTC's approach to these problems, and he ought to declare victory and uh, go home. 
the FBI, this is a leak of a two-year investigation by the FBI into NSO. We don't know much, but apparently they've been looking at NSO for at least two years. Nick, what else do we know? Just about that and good because NSO deserves it. And uh, well, they cost me an iPod Touch a while ago, so uh, I'm happy to see the FBI give them some love. So, how awkward do you think it is when they need to get into an iPhone for them for the FBI to call NSO and ask for help? Uh, they don't deal with the NSO group. The problem is when you deal with the companies that sell to the uh, rectal cranial inversion cases in the Middle East, you fate share with those uh, cases. So what happens is the NSO group stuff gets caught and now all the cases in the U.S. get noticed and notified. And so you've lost any advantage of surreptitious surveillance. So NSO group, hacking team, FinFisher are not ones you want to use by the U.S. government because of this fake sharing problem. Okay, and that means that the FBI can investigate them to its heart's content because uh, they've got other sources of uh, uh, access like Celebrate. Yeah. Citizen Lab will not go after you unless you try to pwn journalists and the like. And that's the thing, that if you get Citizen Lab going after you, you then end up fate sharing with uh, everybody else using the same tools. All right. Uh, that uh, concludes our uh, roundup, uh, although we've got some uh, abusive uh, uh, comments to read later. So stick around if, if you enjoy hearing me abused. Uh, uh, thanks to Gus Hurwitz, to Con Kitchen, and to Nick Weaver for joining me. This has been Episode 298 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please do send comments and suggestions for speakers and interview subjects to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, and we'll send you one of our highly coveted mugs. Uh, uh, we're going to have to make a decision about whether to also do that for people who suggest stories, because at least one of the stories we covered today was uh, 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 tweeted to me as something that we should be covering uh, by somebody who said, and by the way, I'd like a, cu a mug for that. Uh, uh, and uh, rate uh, the show, leave a review, uh, especially if you disagree with the reviews that I'm going to read. Uh, I, I promised I'd read the ones that were entertainingly abusive. Some of these are less than entertainingly abusive, but what the hell. Uh, Mindful Store says, I'm, I'm quite on the left. No, really very on the left, but I'm complicated. I radically like the ACLU when it comes to certain issues like free speech, and I have a love-hate relationship with this podcast and its host. Uh, at the end of the day, I listen to this to know what the other side is saying and to keep open-minded. Uh, so far, core demographic of this show, uh, uh, if we're only ever in silos, then we're not part of the solution. Having said that, the host of this podcast, to me, comes across as arrogant, unempathetic, and truly representing everything I hate about the right, a smug defender of power and profit, and an arrogant disdainer of equality and justice. Yuck. I, you know, I, fair enough. Uh, at least eloquent. Uh, I, the, the other one is from a guy named Peter Gwillem. Uh, um, and and uh, Gus, I'm going to ask for your legal advice here. Uh, um, uh, his heading is Advertised Princess MBS 
busts into Bezos's phone. So he's he's talking about uh, uh, Mohammed bin Sal- uh, Salman's uh, uh, Bezos phone, uh, alleged Bezos phone uh, exploit, and then he said he's basically saying they advertised Princess MBS busts into the Bezos's phone, but instead I got. China trade deal and whining about King County and uh, yada yada. Clearly, these hostesses have outstanding debts and or obedience requirements to their law partners, to current and pined for future clients, offshore compensation in dollars, shekels or rubles, of course, and or Mayor Kahane. Uh, or the hostesses simply fear Princess MBS has bone saws with their names on the blades Ladies, next time you advertise, don't make your listeners wait or hunt around for the promised topical chat. So he's complaining that we headlined our interview uh, uh, with uh, uh, Alex Stamos uh, uh, and the UN rapporteur, um, and then it showed up late. But my my question for you, Gus, uh, in touch with the uh, uh, the sensibilities of academia. Have I been misgendered? <laughs> I, I was going to say I tried to avoid any commentary about MBS because I fear the hacksaw, but uh, I, I uh, avoid commentary about gender and your gender in particular, Stuart, uh, even more forcefully. Shocking. All right. Well, I, you know, I think the guy should be canceled. Uh, there's, there's only one remedy for this. Please join us next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 